This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I am your host, Alex Andreu. I am speaking to you from the past or the future, I'm not sure which. We are recording this episode quite literally as the reshuffle is starting. So rather than speculate on dribs and drabs of information, we will proceed with this recording and put out an additional emergency cast on Thursday morning with reaction to what looks like a fairly significant move. So you will hear that before this regular episode. Right, enough time travel. <laughs> Let's meet this week's panel. Naomi Smith is the head honcho at Best of Britain. Hello, Naomi. Hello. Naomi, Andrew Neil resigned this week like Pandora yelling, you take it, moments <laughs> after opening the box. <laughs> he joins the chapter of the record books that includes Sam Allardyce as England manager, Edwin Poots as DUP leader and Google Glasses. Um, if you listen carefully beyond the sound of most people laughing, some are warning this means the channel will pivot even further to the right. I'm not sure what is further to the right that doesn't involve snappy uniforms. Should we be happy or should we be scared? That's a very good question. Um, I think that schadenfreude is a really underrated form of therapy. <laughs> and, um, there is something delicious uh, about just how quickly all of this has unraveled. Um, so hopefully this is now the end or at least the beginning of the end. But it is possible that GB News makes the decision to go full Fox OAN, Newsmax, Infowars, um, although I suppose that could get them into trouble with Ofcom if, if they uh, are still a regulator with any teeth. But look, either way, I'm not going to be shedding any tears for Neil or the American or Emirati funders of GB News. Yes, and if Daker is not in charge of Ofcom, we should say. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, look, I suppose the good news is the obvious schadenfreude and that his exit has apparently precipitated the departure of a lot of young staff and producers and technicians who believed in him uh, when he told them that GB News would not be Fox News in the UK. I suppose the bad news is that with him gone, obviously GB News could try and maintain relevance by doing that that full Fox thing. Um, and, that, you know, there have been uh, uh, rumours that they're pushing to hire more radical right-wingers. Mm and deliver more of that favourite of the conservative wing nut, the, the diatribe piece to camera. And while I don't believe in conspiracy theories having a massive audience in the UK right now, I think we'd be stupid to think of it couldn't happen here. Yes, so, yeah. but although I do think maintain relevance is doing some heavy lifting. In that that um, I, he's been sharing some ITN content over the last few days, I noticed. What do you think is next for Brillo? Can he ever recover any notion of neutrality that will see him come back to the mainstream? I mean, Neil is still going to be a commentator. Um, and indeed, I think he was on with 
Farage mere hours after quitting. He's also expected to probably pop up on question time now, but but unchained from any semblance of being the impartial interviewer. But, and I suppose, you know, say what you like about him, his long BBC career gave him and GB News by extension that veneer of respectability uh, that, that, you know, may have reigned GB News in the form, in from like e- even worse impulses, I suppose. Our guest this week is a member of the Northern Ireland Legislative Assembly for East Londonderry. She's a former Minister of Justice for the Northern Ireland Executive, securing that position at the age of just 29. <laughs> She's not just been an independent for seven years, but is the only independent unionist instalment. Claire Sugden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Claire, this week... Nicola Sturgeon, in her opening conference speech, was vociferous in her opposition to Brexit, calling mm. it an unnecessary and unforgivable act that will cause long-term damage. As a Northern Ireland unionist, what's your mm. view of the SNP's use of Brexit in their cause of independence? It's Brexit in itself was a huge constitutional change um, and indeed that would have had impact across uh, the, the United Kingdom, not least for nationalists that, you know, that, are, that are trying to progress their own kind of independence, whether it's Scottish independence or indeed um, uh, towards a united Ireland. Um, and, and indeed politicians here in Northern Ireland who would be of that view um, have certainly suggested that Bre- Brexit brings us one step forward toward that. Um, I think what we need to be careful with Brexit, however, is that the kind of the context in which Brexit happened for the UK and indeed on a global scale will be very different in terms of any constitutional change that that could happen on the island of Ireland. And I don't think we could compare Scottish independence um, potentially with a with a constitutional change in mm. on the island, not least because of our, our history and our legacy and, and the conflict and, and what we've had to do in the you know twenty odd years, you know, post Good Friday Agreement. Um, and we're still in our infancy, you know, uh, in, in terms of that peace process. And I still believe, you know, and we've seen that in recent years, the challenges of, of trying to ensure stability in Northern Ireland. So I, I, you know, certainly as someone who voted Remain, someone who didn't want to see um, Brexit, you know, I, I think it has had devastating consequences. Um, I think to an extent we are where we are. And then I think even the challenges coming out of that in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol, you know, they are causing issues. Um, I think some would downplay those issues um, because of their own perhaps constitutional aspiration. But th- they exist. Um, I-, I think there are opportunities with the protocol, but I don't know if they can be fully realised until the-, the challenges with the protocol um, yeah. can be uh, realised. We'll get into the discussion of the protocol proper in the main show. But do you think the unionist community in general, and I include the Conservative Party in that actually, took mm. the threat Brexit post to the constitutional fabric of the UK just not seriously enough. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I don't think they took it seriously. Indeed, I, I tend to, to put the blame of all of this at David Cameron's feet. Um, and it seemed to be uh, a demonstration of his ego at that point. And I don't think he anticipated the, the outcome mm. of, of the vote in the way it, it, it then played out. And now we're, I suppose, dealing with the consequences of that. And he, you know, he left the sinking ship. And it, it has been a challenge, um, not least for the UK government and negotiating um, a, a deal with, with the EU, but all those people on the perimeter, not least the people of Northern Ireland. And it sometimes does feel that there are um, people are using Northern Ireland without properly asking what the people need and want. Um, and I think that's it's unacceptable um, because we, we're living with it day to day. 
Ian Dunt is a columnist at the I, an author of How to Be a Liberal, now available in supple, pliable, soft, <laughs> stashable, gorgeously portable paperback. Hello, having, Ian. Having you say that in that accent, <laughs> I think it's done more wonders for my commercial prospects than anything I've said over the last fucking two months. You can clip it for your ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, the book is exactly a year old today, but in an indication of how exponential our current political learning curve is, there's an exclusive version of the paperback edition available at Waterstones that includes a bonus essay. What do you discuss in it? Yeah, well, I mean, COVID, basically, and what the fuck happened to Tory MPs during the COVID period? Because suddenly you got this burst where these guys who've been, you know, silencing protests, implementing Brexit, you know, following this nationalist sort of extremely reactionary agenda, suddenly just started speaking the language of liberalism, of, oh, the freedom of the individual. They didn't call it liberalism. They mostly called it libertarianism. But the principles are the same. So it was really to try and understand, like, sort of almost on a psychological level, how can the human brain withstand that level of cognitive dissonance? <laughs> and the primary, so, I mean, one of the primary things I looked at was economics. And it kind of it goes back to Hayek, really. And specifically, Frederick Hayek's relationship with Margaret Thatcher. They were very, very close. She was kind of a disciple of his. And something happened to Hayek. Like, I'm, I'm kind of... You know, I mean, Hayek, I think, was wrong about almost everything and was an extremely pernicious influence in the history of ideas. But I think he was a fundamentally decent man. So nothing in this story gives me pleasure. But, you know, there's a period when Hayek went to Pinochet's Chile. Mm. And Hayek did not go there to scrutinize Pinochet or to criticize him. He went there to celebrate Pinochet. And in fact, did that as the years went on in the pages of the press. And I think the reason for that was that he and that whole laissez-faire, neoliberal, libertarian wing of, of liberalism just lost sight of any freedom that was, wasn't about the free market. Yeah. The yeah. real sense of individual freedom was lost. It just became freedom to them just meant the free market. And then when you look at what Tory MPs were saying here during COVID, and the same was, applies to the Republicans in the US, all they were really talking about was the freedom of business. You know, the moment that they got upset was when shops had to close. It mm. was when businesses were having to shutter. It wasn't really about personal, about individual freedom at all. And I think that mangled kind of liberalism, that of right-wing liberalism, that went into the Conservative Party through Thatcher from Hayek, that was the kind of remnants of this kind of ideological detritus that they had to hand to express their emotional upset of businesses having to close. Yeah, there's the sense that if you... If you basically diminish people to economic units, then suddenly the idea they might have wishes and uh, ambitions and uh, illnesses becomes a mere inconvenience in your economic model. Was mm. anything else that played into this, do you think? Yeah, well, it's along the lines of what you just said, really, that there's this, um, this trend in laissez-faire, which is a sort of absence of emotional imagination. Like one of the things that liberalism demands of you is to imagine what life is like for others. So you can imagine the kind of impingement on their freedom that you have to fight against, right? So, you know, I am a straight, white, middle-class guy. So it, workplace harassment might not instantly come to mind when I'm imagining the kind of freedoms that are necessary to lead a fulfilled life. But of course it will if you have a very different background. But what strikes me as amazing watching Tory MPs was this was a freedom they could understand. 
right? The freedom of, you know, you've got to wear a mask now, or you can't leave your house now, or you've got to close the shop. That was something that made sense to them. When mm. it comes to women needing abortions, you know, when it comes to people who are getting penalized for drug laws or for stop and search on, on black communities, when it comes to the freedom to, to move, to be an immigrant, to go to a different country, to live somewhere, these were just not freedoms that they understood that they had any emotional contact with. Mm. So, it could just pass. If you're a Black Lives Matter demonstrator, they could just fucking silence you. They didn't give a fuck. They can't imagine what it would be like to be someone in that position. When it was a freedom that mattered to them, then they suddenly gave a shit. And that is, but that is not what liberalism is. Liberalism demands freedom for everyone, not just for people who look like you. And on that basis, I think you kind of get a sense of just what a limited, tawdry, shallow idea of the freedom of the individual they were really communicating during those months. This week on the show, we'll be speaking to Claire about the latest attempt to scrap the Northern Ireland Protocol by the government. Oh, when they catch the scamps who negotiated and signed it, boy, are they in trouble. Also, Sajid Javid announced this government's winter plan to tackle COVID, which does not boil down to inject everyone and cross your fingers, honest. <laughs> Plus, on the extra bit for Patreon backers, with Border Force preparing to nudge inflatables full of women and children into French territorial waters using jet skis, and Emma Ducano's stunning win at the US Open, we look at people's wildly antithetical attitudes to immigration. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, then you could do us a huge favor by heading to Apple Podcasts and giving us a five-star rating, and maybe a review too, if you have time. Apple pushes podcasts based on the reviews and ratings, so this is a great way to help Oh God What Now. Another one is to support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Oh God What Now to find out about early ad-free episodes, merchandise, priority live show tickets, and exclusives like our new weekly spin-off, Oh God What Else. And thanks to our friends at Aston Microphones who've helped kit out our studio with some of their excellent spirit mics. You can now hear Ian Dunt's cackle in even higher definition, which is a bonus, I think. If you're a budding podcaster and want to kit yourself out, visit astonmics.com. First, the government has announced this week a further delay on checks to EU imports until July 2022, which means a full year and a half of barriers for UK exports while the door is held open for imports. I bet having negotiated an extension in view of the pandemic is not looking quite their remunerary option now. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, in more Brexit can-kicking news, the grace period for checks on some goods entering Northern Ireland has been extended indefinitely due to a negotiating stalemate with the EU. The move affects the trade in goods like cold meats in what has been dubbed the Sausage Wars, which is also an excellent club night at the Vauxhall Tavern. <laughs> Since we negotiated, signed and ratified this agreement, movement by the EU depends largely on goodwill. So you would think the approach would be collegiate. Not a bit of it. Brexit Minister Lord Frost is threatening to suspend the Northern Ireland Protocol entirely if the EU does not budge. Apparently, we still hold all the cards, albeit back to front. Naomi, Frost's opposite number, Maros Shevchevich, is warning about the instability scrapping the protocol would cause. What would practically happen if it were thrown out by the government in Westminster? Could we be looking at reverting to a no-deal scenario in the worst case? Uh, well, thankfully, we are still protected to some extent by the grown-ups. Um, and by that, of course, I mean 
the EU. And we just have to remember that, you know, they are grown-ups and they are too clever to let themselves be cast as the bad guys who have caused major disruption, particularly in Ireland. So I think on balance, I suspect not. I think we are, however, looking at more endless fudge and can kicking. Mm. And so it's our jobs and and the jobs of listeners and and all of those who agree with the things that we say on the show um, is to make sure that Brits know who to blame. And it's not the EU. Mm. Not great for business. A, a, A spokesperson for Number 10 this week said, businesses must prepare for change, but we can't tell you what it is or when it's coming. Which is um, what they've been saying for years to business. To, I mean, I, I'm glad I don't run a business, to be honest. Mm-hmm. According to HMRC, Brexit red tape has cost UK importers £600 million the first half of this year alone. If we discount the UK rejoining some sort of customs union, is there a practical way for the import duties to be reduced in a way that satisfies both Westminster and Brussels, do you think? Oh, this is a tough one. What we definitely can do more of is digitization. So there probably is more that can be done on that front uh, to, to reduce some of that red tape burden and leveraging tech to make things a little bit quicker. And businesses over time will simply just get used to providing more information. But ultimately, being outside a customs union and the single market will bring inevitable extra cost and Mm. that typically falls hardest on the smaller businesses and those that don't quite have the balance sheet strength to suck up hiring new admin people and compliance people to deal with all of this. Ian, it's not just real pigs that are threatened. Even M&S Percy pigs are one of the products (laughs) subject to new rules of origin regulations. But the chair of Marks & Spencer... Archie Norman claims the rules are pointless because the UK's food standards are higher and haven't changed since we were a member of the EU anyway. Is he telling Porkies? I will catch the member of the production team who wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, man. I just can't. It's, it, you just, it's, it's, it, you, you, how can it be <laughs> five years and they're still saying this shit? It is just beyond my fucking comprehension. We know, I mean, it, look, I don't know whether he doesn't understand it. I think he does understand it and he's just being cynical. But either way, I mean, by the way, this caused one of my few retail strops. I usually have kind of a rule that I don't do the flouncing off. I'm no longer going to buy stuff from these guys. I'm not going to fuck. There's a Marks and Spencer's just down the house. It's quite inconvenient for me not to go to Marks and Spencer's. I'm not fucking going to Marks and Spencer's anymore if he's going to shoot his mouth off with this imbecilic twattery. Ultimately, you leave a customs union, you leave a single market, it means that there are checks. I, I can't believe I'm still saying this after five years. It means <laughs> that there are checks when you're trying to send them stuff. And it doesn't matter whether your standards are higher. It doesn't, it doesn't, none of it fucking matters. They have a customs union. They have a single market. We left it. That's intrinsic in the entirety of the choice that they put forward. Having left it when going into it, there is paperwork. And that is what he is now either discovering or pretending to discover. Hmm. But also we, we've signed a deal with Australia that is going to allow lower standard meat product into into the country. You know, mm-hmm. we th- this is the start of it and, and the government has still got its eyes on that fated 
US trade deal, which, by the way, is not looking like it's going to happen in Biden's first term, if at all. But, you know, for sure, our government has got its eyes on lowering food standards. And, mm. uh, and it, you know, we, we need business leaders that should know what they're talking about to actually speak truth to power. Ian, the UK has an estimated shortfall of 90,000 lorry drivers. Some estimates are higher. So the government has decided to streamline the HGV testing process. Uh, How are they going to make that shorter? Yeah, there's a couple of aspects to this. So one of them is the one that people are mostly talking about at the moment, but is actually the one that sort of most of the experts on this are least concerned about. And that's where you take the CAT-C test and the C plus E test. And the, the CAT-C is for sort of smaller vehicles and, and the C plus C is for, for larger ones, articulated vehicles. And you basically say, look, if you're going straight for the articulated, you don't really need to worry about the earlier test. We'll incorporate it into the latter. Um, and the, most of the experts aren't particularly worried about that. There's also a section of it where on reversing, either in an S-shape or in a direct line, and for the decoupling and recoupling, that part of the test was off-road and it sort of took a long time to go off and do it. So they're getting rid of that and they're separating it out. It will still be done, but it's done as part of a separate sort of thing so the test can be faster. And again, there's very few concerns about that. And by the way, I have to say, you know, there are many solutions to this problem. Immigration is one of them and must be considered. Improving the conditions of lorry drivers here is one of them and really is of the highest fucking importance. And then there is a bit of streamlining of the trading, and that isn't necessarily a problem in itself. There is, however, what they fucking sneaked in there is the B plus E test. The B plus E test is on towing. And basically, if you have a caravan that you attach mm-hmm. to your car, you need a special pass for that. And you really should. Because people fail that test all the time. I mean, there was one point where 40, I think that was not last year, but the year before, 40% of people taking that failed it. Now, they're basically just getting rid of that. And in this, they're getting rid of the need to have this separate sort of vehicle certificate in order for towing an object. So if you're there with a caravan, you'll now just be able to do it with a classic, with a standard driver's license. Now, this really is quite a bizarre and dangerous approach for them to have taken. We need more details on it. We don't yet have all of the information if they ever deem to supply it to us um, on why and how they plan on doing this. But that's the bit that most sort of experts in this area look at and go like, why the fuck are you doing that? And surely you understand that there could be quite severe negative consequences that flow from it. Claire, there's been strong unionist opposition to the protocol since it can be seen to promote a view of Northern Ireland as a separate entity from the rest of the UK. Given Theresa May's red lines, was there ever a solution that wouldn't upset one of the two opposing camps? I think some of the solutions that Theresa May put forward were potentially options um, to to not have found ourselves in the position that we now do. And I suppose just to clarify in relation to the opposition that's coming from uh, some unionists, not all of unionism. Unionism Mm -hmm. is a a constitutional ideology. It's it's not one particular group or other. It's it's a belief, a constitutional one at that. But it does seem to be giving rise to unionist or loyalist discontent on the streets. And I think that's in the context of a wider kind of conversation around the constitution issue in in, in Northern Ireland and indeed there are people, nationalist Republicans, who are almost gaslighting the idea that a united Ireland is inevitable and you know I think that in itself you know flies in the face of the Good Friday Agreement and the principle of self-determination and I think if you look at polls in in Northern Ireland or, or even just how people vote they may not necessarily vote for unionist parties, but overwhelmingly, if a referendum were to happen, I think they will vote to stay within the UK. So I don't think a United Ireland is happening anytime soon. But, you know, when, when people are suggesting that Northern Ireland, um, which is a region of the United Kingdom, and it will be until the people of Northern Ireland say otherwise, but when there are 
access issues in, in a way that in previous years there was no problem with that. You know, there was issues in relation to people being able to take their pets to GB and back to Northern Ireland. There's now issues in relation to, you know, to medicine. I think on the ground, people are questioning that and saying, well, why is this happening? I think there has to be um, a way to reassure those individuals that, that this doesn't necessarily have to mean what some politicians are saying that. And, you know, mm. bear in mind as well, we are... Uh, six months out from an election in Northern Ireland, potentially sooner if um, Geoffrey Donaldson um, doesn't get what he's asking for. Mm. And a lot of it is to an extent politicking, but it could have severe consequences. I suppose the conversation that's happening in Northern Ireland this week is, will the Northern Ireland executive collapse? I'm not sure the public would forgive anyone who did that. That said, you know, what will it achieve? Um, I'm less concerned about when it collapses because, again, the election's due anyway. I'm more concerned about what happens after an election and the dynamic that will create because I think what we could see in Northern Ireland, which symbolically is is actually quite significant, is that we have a Sinn Féin First Minister. I think given the context of that particular part, I don't even think it's an issue that it's a nationalist First Minister. I think it's more of an issue of that. And I, I'd be interested to see how certain parties, probably the DUP in particular, would respond to that. Would they take, you know, their, their deputy First Minister sit alongside that. I think it would be difficult for them, but equally why? Because, you know, it's a joint Sinn Féin did it for... Yeah. Exactly, exactly, you know, and it, they're mutually exclusive insofar as if one exists, the other, and, and if, if one decides to go, the other one goes as well. It's almost playing into this kind of feeling on the ground. But again, I think that points to the issues with Northern Ireland and addressing our legacy. Um, you know, what the Good Friday Agreement achieved was, was to stop the violence, but it really didn't go... Uh, far enough in terms of reconciling people and actually recognising the difference that exists in Northern Ireland and embracing mm. it and respecting it. I think that's the next step of our of our peace process here, but it doesn't seem that there's any leadership willing to take that. What, what do you say to someone like me? I mean, I, I'm a foreigner, and even though I've been in this country a long time, I guess I have an emotional detachment from the history of Northern Ireland, but also a lack of understanding of the granular detail of what goes on there. Mm-hmm. So I look at this thing from a distance, and I think, what's the problem? You made out like bandits, babe. You've got in many, many ways the best of both worlds. Shouldn't that be celebrated and and if you moved on from that couldn't you then make a more cogent case for unionism as things stand now rather than a romantic unionism that wants to go back to before the protocol I wouldn't say that my type of unionism is the one that you're necessarily describing. My unionism is very forward thinking and actually Mm. looking at the opportunities and the benefits of staying within the United Kingdom. And that's not just because I come from a a particular background. It's simply because I think that's what's best for the people of Northern Ireland, whether they disagree with me on my constitutional position or, or they agree. I think the difficulty in Northern Ireland is that the two main unionist parties that represent unionism do tend to be more right wing parties. Mm. They tend to be more conservative. Yet there's a whole swathe of people, including me, it's probably why I sit as an independent in Northern Ireland, whose constitutional position is unionism, but whose politics is probably more left of centre, centre ground, and you know wants to look towards uh, the benefits of, of Northern Ireland and really trying to improve where we are, because you know for, for all the criticism, for, for all the headaches that we seem to get year after year, you know Northern Ireland has come considerably far in, in terms of our progress, particularly in relation to, to stopping the conflict and building relationships thereafter. I sit in an assembly now that 20 years ago would not have been possible. There were politicians who couldn't bear to look at one another, let alone, you know, 
you'll engage in meetings to want it together yeah. and actually work. So there are many positive things that have happened in Northern Ireland, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with your point that to me, the intent of the Good Friday Agreement was about embracing one another's difference. To an extent, I think there's some parties that would nearly have us be neutral. Often I hear, oh, you know, let's get away from the orange and green. And from a political perspective, I get that. But equally, I think it's as valid to be a unionist as I think it's as valid to be a nationalist. And it's about understanding each other's position and almost respecting it and maybe persuading each other if that question ever comes about. So I don't think we should be neutral. I think we should embrace one another and respect one another. But a lot of that, you know, in doing that is about exposure and it's about communities, you know, integrating, um, understanding that there are people out there who are different, even just in terms of immigrants coming into Northern Ireland as well. We have considerable amount of immigrants who play a really important role within the community. They are our community. It's not a case mm. that they're set aside from that. And I think it's about, you know, that's what Northern Ireland does. And sadly as well, the media has a big role to play in all of this insofar as we don't tend to shine a light on those good things that do happen. Look at Belfast. It's one of the most exciting cities for investment in all of Europe. Um, you know, we have a we have probably a world-class cyber uh, security industry to the point that, you know, huge companies from across the world are wanting to, to invest here and actually learn from here because of our experience. So... I think there are significant opportunities in Northern Ireland. There's many positive things to talk about it. And again, the point I would make, even in, in and around unionism on that, is that all of that has happened within a context of where, of, of a Northern Ireland, which means you can be both British and Irish. I think any move towards an, a new constitutional arrangement, I may not be able to get both of those words, mm. best, best of both words. And I think, yes, we maybe haven't executed it in a post-conflict environment as well as we could have. But maybe now um, in the second centenary of Northern Ireland, if, if we can get that far, we need to look at how we genuinely progress Northern Ireland and embrace all within it. So is there a version of the protocol that you could live with? Do you know, I uh, in January 1st, I was asked about this and said, you know, Claire, in four years' time, if you're a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, will you vote to, to maintain this arrangement? And I said, you know what, let's wait and see. Let's not just preempt that this protocol is a particular thing because some politicians don't understand it, if I'm going to be honest. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. If there are opportunities in, the, in, in it, absolutely, let's do that. But I think the difficulty with the protocol is that there are many difficulties with it. And, you know, I suppose my frustration is that rather than address those difficulties, people are almost trying to displace them. You know, so it's, yes, you know, if there's better, if, if there's more opportunities north-south of the border on the island of Ireland, let's make use of those. We should be doing that anyway. We're, you know, yeah. geographically, we're an island, you know, take the opportunities there where we can. But that shouldn't be as a replacement to the, the difficulties that we're having east-west, particularly because we haven't had those those barriers in, in years previous to this. I think, um, you know, certainly looking at it, I think there is a disproportionate focus on regulation and almost a risk-averse approach to, to the checks in Northern Ireland. Perhaps if those checks were required, rather than almost putting a significant amount of resource into that, be a wee bit more risk in terms of doing that, particularly given what the risks are you know many of them are mm. minimal you know and you know i can assure you in my former role as justice minister there's many more concerns about access to you know to, to northern ireland and ireland that we should be worried about the european counterpoint would be that they may be minimal now but you're putting in place an arrangement that is sustainable in 10 years time when we may be getting um you know complete products of completely different standards coming in from the United States. I mean, I know there's an election coming and I know there's politicking involved and parties position in the polls. 
But is it useful for DUP leader Jeffrey Donaldson, who mentioned to be threatening to collapse Stormont completely? I mean, even even as a symbol that strikes me as strange, it's the place where you talk to each other, mm-hmm. and there has never been more of a need for you to talk to each other. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's not useful to be doing that. But I suppose if I try to um, put myself into his head of what he is doing, he's talking to his audience. And ultimately, you know, that he, he's going to be seeking unionist votes in the next number of months. And, you know, again, when we, you know, if we come back to that kind of conversation that I had, where there, there are perhaps more extreme elements of, of unionism, maybe in the forms, you know, of loyalists, and then there's more middle ground unionists, he's going to be trying to decide which vote unionists, if you like, to be targeting yeah. in, in terms yeah. of, you know, of, of what he's saying. And I think realistically, you know, given the DUP's history, given the fact that they, you know, did grow out of a more right-wing extreme uh, unionist party in Northern Ireland, I think it is probably most obvious that they are targeting, you know, that group of people in terms of votes. So I think that's what he's doing. Knowing, knowing Jeffrey, he's a much more subdued, sensible kind of character, but perhaps he recognises that in terms of his vote, the party's vote, maybe this is the only opportunity to kind of claw back you know, some of those people who have felt um, a bit, uh, I suppose, disaffected by the DUP. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. On Tuesday, the government revealed its plans to tackle COVID in England this winter, which appeared to be remarkable, the same plan it had last winter and the winter before that, to try and ignore it until it cannot, and to do so via a completely confused communication strategy. Two days after Vaccines Minister Nadim Zahawi told news outlets vaccine passports will still an option, Health Secretary Sajid Javid told Nick Robinson that they would be ditched, Two days after that, Sajid Javid told Parliament that they would be introduced if necessary. <laughs> Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam has advised ministers that booster vaccines should be given to over 50s this winter, at least six months after a second dose, and a dose of the Pfizer vaccine will be rolled out among 12 to 15-year-olds in coming weeks, but only as a voluntary measure, after the JCVI did not recommend it, but the CMOs did, sort of. Clear? as mud. Ian, the government always claims to be following the science, but what has become very clear over the last year and a half is that there is no such thing as the science. So it always comes down to political choices. How sound does the science seem behind offering booster jabs at this stage? There's a Public Health England uh, report on immunity waning that just came out, which makes for good reading on this. Um, and, you know, you break it down into sort of infections, hospitalizations and deaths. It's a page turner, is it? It's, it's gripping. Well, <laughs> I do kind of eat this stuff up, right? Because I'm still always, uh, you know, there's a, I'm still basically always thinking about my ideas is the reality of it. And, you know, you're mm. seeing it as you go now and you're just thinking like, you know, how much safety is there? And the answer is there's a lot. There isn't much waiting. I mean, on on infections, generally speaking, Moderna is better than Pfizer, Pfizer is better than AstraZeneca, but the, the, the waning is is pretty moderate. Mm-hmm. Especially it seems that the longer the gap between the two doses, 
the better it is. And some of the data coming from Israel um, would, would suggest that that's also the case. Um, on hospitalizations, there's a, a little bit of waning. Um, with Pfizer, a bit more with, with AstraZeneca. But you look at it and it's predominantly on over 65s with underlying health conditions. Mm. That is the crucial part. That, that, that seems to be the group. Same with deaths. You know, very little bit of waning. Where's it coming from? Predominantly that group. So the case, I think, for boosters, looking at, I mean, looking at that report would suggest that it's the over 65s with underlying health conditions. If you don't have underlying health conditions, you're over 65. I mean, it might be useful to give, but generally speaking, immunity is standing up pretty well. So there is a, definitely a role for it. But you would have thought that on the basis of what we've seen so far, you would expect it to be quite heavily targeted. Nadim Zahawi has spoken about this being, and I quote, the last piece of the jigsaw to allow us to transition this virus from pandemic to endemic. I remember Professor Pargel on this podcast a few weeks ago saying that there's not one endemicity, there's not one kind of endemicity, and it's vitally important at what level of endemicity you settle and that there would be risks in settling at a level of endemicity that's really high, case-wise. Are we walking into another winter problem, do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, they've done nothing to prepare for the winter at all. They just pissed it away, right? I mean, they did nothing on ventilation. I don't know how Mm. many times we have to have the conversation that ventilation is absolutely crucial in this thing, much more important than washing your hands, much more important than wiping down services. You know, there was a point where you could fund offices, schools. Schools to especially. Out, especially schools. Yeah, those yeah. areas where it seemed like they had a, where they have high CO2, which suggests that they have very poor ventilation. There are a variety of ways that you can do that. Some of them very cheap and easy. Some of them a bit more expensive. It could be done. They haven't even managed to get the CO2 monitors into schools, let alone do anything about the results that they would find. You see the same with funding people for isolation. You see the same with just the decision of, well, we'll just get rid of everything, get rid of the mask, get rid of any kind of restriction whatsoever. This could have been an opportunity to prepare ourselves so that through the winter you can guarantee that you don't have to go to plan B, you don't have to go to plan C. You have that backup. You get levels to a lower point before you go into the difficult season. And that wasn't taken. Now, look, it might be all right. I mean, let's not be funny about it. You know, this is, it's not like an absolute doom and gloom. I mean, in the summer when we opened up, it was nowhere near as bad as we expected it yeah, to yeah. be. And that was almost universal, that expectation, including from myself. The thing is, it's a question of risk. What do you do with the risk? We know the risk is there. Do you plan for it? Or do you just fucking strip off all your clothes, run out naked into the street and go take me if you can? Just fucking, you know, do absolutely nothing to protect yourselves against these eventualities. And they, over and over again, have taken that latter course. Naomi, with vaccines being offered to school-aged children, might we see the anti-vax rhetoric ramping up again in the next few weeks? Is there a danger from a civil unrest point of view? Probably not beyond the, the, the levels of civil unrest we've seen from the, the current crop of anti-vax brigade, um, although Nicki Minaj doing her best to <laughs> fire people up over her cousins, friends... I'm so disappointed. Yeah. Any time it comes to epidemiology advice, hers is the first feed but yes, I yes. go to. Yeah, you, you say pandemic, <laughs> I say Nicki Minaj. Um, but yes, you're probably right. Anti-vax rhetoric will probably escalate. There will be, you know, concerned parents, etc. And so listeners just need to be armed with the key messages to send skeptics, to send their own MPs, you know, engage with people in their social media feeds that are coming out with nonsense. And it's something that we've not sort of touched on yet on this episode. And it's 
what we really need to do to protect ourselves is to vaccinate the world. In June of this year, the Prime Minister called for leaders of the G7 nations to make a commitment to vaccinate the entire world by the end of 2022. Mm. But now they're prioritising booster shots to healthy adults, while less than 2% of people in low-income countries have even had a single dose. And this matters because the Delta variant, which is the one that is running rampant the world over, did not originate in the UK. Yeah. It, is, it is a variant that, that, that cropped up in a country with low levels of immunization. And when the virus is allowed to rip through other countries, more dangerous strains inevitably end up here. And the Delta variant is more resistant to the vaccine. It, and, you know, and a worse variant could just set us back to square one. And the UK is currently sitting on enough doses to fully vaccinate our entire population three times over. We've got 442 million doses. So we can do both. It's a false choice to say the government has to decide uh, between, you know, vaccinating those at home or sending them abroad. And their current sort of charity approach has meant piecemeal donations, which makes it harder for COVAX and other countries to plan effectively. And a formal kind of one-in-one-out policy where a dose is donated for every one we import and administer here is just a very sensible approach. And also to say that when there's constricted supply, giving money to COVAX is not the same as giving doses. Lockdowns uh, haven't been mentioned, as well as vaccine passports. Plan B would include mandating face coverings again in public. Is Just having a plan B going to be enough if there is a significant winter crisis in the NHS? And why not keep a measure as easy as face coverings in public? Just keep it in place as they're doing in Scotland, for instance. Indeed, 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 you know, planning to fail, failing to plan and all of that. And, you know, even if they've got the plan, they'll end up going for it so late as to render it, you know, ineffective and stable door horse bolted kind of stuff. And, you know, and that's why I I just sort of like keep coming back to what they need to be doing now. And that is matching the vaccine doses to COVAX on that one in one out thing, the rapid extension of UK's domestic production capability. I mean, we are not where we should be in terms of being able to produce doses here. Uh, We need to be supporting the WTO TRIPS waiver proposal to enable vaccine production to happen in lower middle income countries too. It shouldn't just be uh, reliant on on the the wealthier countries to be producing and donating. And then obviously, yeah, prioritising vaccine donation over booster jabs in the UK, limiting booster jabs to the vulnerable and the immunosuppressed in the UK. But you're right, Alex, there are so many ridiculous knee-jerk pandering to the libertarian flank uh, and and rump of their party that they're doing that just serves to make us all less safe. Mm. Claire, Scotland, as I just said, is currently going it alone when it comes to vaccine passports and, to an extent, face coverings. But there are calls for mass checking to be replaced by spot checks at major events, for example. How does the approach in Northern Ireland differ? Because we hear very, very Mm. little about it. Yeah, Northern Ireland has taken more of a tentative approach in terms of coming out of the restrictions. So in, in, in most cases, you know, you still have to wear your, your face mask when going into public areas. Um, there, you know, there still is that culture of social distancing and, and risk assessments mm-hmm. within um, various events and, um, uh, and uh, buildings. I, I uh, was with um, some of my colleagues last night and this discussion came up, particularly in relation to vaccine passports. Um, and indeed, the, the Republic of Ireland currently have vaccine uh, passports 
in place, so that does change the dynamic a little bit for Northern Ireland, particularly in comparison to the rest of the, uh, of the United Kingdom. So you're on the slightly more cautious side, is what I'm is what I'm hearing as a summary, right? Generally, in terms of our restrictions, will we move towards a vaccine passport? They're sort of suggesting that we're past the point of when it will be useful. Um, so they may not do that. And indeed, the two big parties mm. are saying that. But, you know, it's not off the table, um, as, as it seems to be the case anywhere. But then I suppose that's just to pander to every kind of view on this. So, Your executive has introduced a £100 high street mm. voucher to all over-18s in the country. Mm-hmm. Are you optimistic about the impact that will have if we are forced to lock down over winter, say, will it be enough to keep businesses' lights on until the new year? Um, well, it's it's an economic stimulus scheme. So I, I think the idea behind it was to try and support businesses rather than it being a, a silver bullet in terms of, you know, what has happened on the high street, not just, mm. you know, during the pandemic, but I think even leading up to that. You know, I think there are a few flaws with the scheme. They haven't extended it to 16, 17-year-olds, you know, the group that we really would you know, like to encourage back to the high street because I expect, you know, given their age, they, they tend to shop online maybe more than most. Again, it's investment back into, you know, to uh, small businesses in Northern Ireland, which I think is key. Small businesses make up quite a significant uh, percentage of, of our uh, local economy here. Um, but again, I think it has to happen in the round and we need to look at other ways of how we can support businesses. It's it's nearly happening a bit late as well. It's happening too close to the mouth of Christmas. You know, the, the, the intent of the scheme or indeed, you know, to, to try and stimulate the economy. It shouldn't displace Christmas then because otherwise it's, it's more of an income benefit rather than a stimulus. But mm. yeah. Now it's time for Overrated Underrated, where each week we pick the Met Gala Rihanna Balenciagas and the Nicki Minaj short shorts of the world of politics. This week, Claire Sugden gets a go. Um, yeah, sure. I'm trying to maybe perhaps just with what's happening in Westminster at the minute, um, there was a, a bit of a rumour that Gavin Williamson might take over as Secretary of State um, uh, for, for Northern Ireland, given his confusion <laughs> about many things. Maybe we need to, to swipe right, is it? I don't know. I, I've never used it. Are you suggesting <laughs> Gavin Williamson may be overrated? <laughs> well, you know, he, he's certainly limited. Um, and, you know, when it comes to Northern Ireland, you really can't get confused about these things. But then and, you know, that said, our current Secretary of State certainly hasn't pleased too many people, but it's a tough gig. You know, Northern Ireland people are hard to please. We have very high standards. And, you know, it's it's difficult for, for any um, member of Parliament from England to, to be Secretary of State of Northern Ireland because they don't have votes here. So they're not trying to please anyone. They're just, I suppose, doing a job. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't go down too well um, in yeah. Northern Ireland. So. They can be either too close or too far, isn't it? Is there any historic... Um, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, who you think is a bit underrated? I thought James Brogenshire was underrated. Um, I, I mm-hmm. quite liked him. I thought he was um, he was very um, attentive to to politicians here. Um, I, I suppose his illness um, maybe you know prevented him from doing you know the good work that he could do. So yeah. Oh well, mm. we wish him all a very yeah. speedy. Recovery. We do. We wish him all the very best. And that is the show. Thanks to Ian. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you very much. And our special guest, Claire Sugden. Thank you. <laughs> Stay tuned for our extra bit for Patreons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Hello from me and thank you to Tim Hudson, Neo Knight, Dale Bennett, Fiona Lynch, Susan Carter, Emma Bridger and Simon Patson. 
And it's a huge thanks and a virtual high five from me to Ryan Gilby, Keo Matthewin, Matthew Dickey, Peter Griffith, Simon Evans, Linda Killen and John Scott. And a boatload of gratitude from me to Philip Novak, Oscar McCarthy, Deborah Benedy, Paul Dawson, Listen Sweaty, Michael Coates and Pablo. See you next time. Oh God, what now? was presented by Alex Andreev with Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelda Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Andrew Harrison is on holiday. He's fine. We have not kidnapped him. Please stop emailing us. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now extra bit exclusive for Patreon backers. Boats and armoured jet skis in the channel have been observed running training exercise designed to push back migrant boats, attempting to reach the UK like a pound shop James Bond fantasy in which we are definitely not the good guys. The plans will cost £200 million and are part of Priti Patel's increasingly hardline approach to refugees. Ian... A disastrous accident just seems inevitable if these exercises are put into practice. Is the government just hoping France can be blamed when things go wrong, or do they just not care? I don't. I don't know. I don't think they do care. I think the only thing that they give a shit about is looking tough on these boats. There really is no other moral or intellectual or political assessment going on in their heads. We have of course, accidents all the time. I mean, hundreds of people die every year trying to make this crossing. Sometimes we don't even know about them. In fact, one of the, the points that it got bleakest across the EU, really, was when we just start, stopped looking for people. You know, that was, a, that was a conscious policy on behalf of the EU and the Brits, just to stop mm. looking. So we just don't know. We don't actually know how many people die. What we do know is, mm. you know, you can't send the boat back to where it's not being accepted. So ultimately, whatever, whichever way she does it, and all of this is just the, the most god-awful, like morally corroded form of PR imaginable. But, you know, it is, it is not designed to be effective. It is not intended to be effective, and it won't be effective. That's, that's not what the plan is. It's worth looking, by the way, at what the EU does. I mean, the EU, I think really the, the most shameful thing the EU has ever done is the arrangements it came up with with Libya for precisely this sort of thing, for, yeah. for pushbacks. Yeah, and yeah. that, but that had to be done in cooperation with Libya, you know, essentially trying to get Libya into a position where it could take those boats, which essentially meant working with Libya to create these prison camps, which are essentially what they are to drive immigrants back to them. But the core part was you needed Libyan cooperation. And in exactly the same way now, Priti Patel needs French cooperation and she ain't about to get it. I also need to say from a slightly defensive Greek position that, you know, it is very different to be doing this when you've had a million mm -hmm. refugees go through a country of 10 million people and very, very different to be doing this, um, you know, because you've had 500 people coming over the, the 
uh, channel. I think that's 100% um, right, by the way. I'm, I'm not advocating moral relativism of any sort. I'm just saying that, you know, a country and a government also has an emotional I, I state. Right. And the emotional state of Greece at the time when it was getting literally hundreds of thousands of refugees every week, it, it, is, it was very, very different to doing it in the cold, hard light of day because, you know, the Daily Mail has a headline. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, I think for Italy um, and Greece, they were just offered no help with the burden. That was the core part. And that happened because of predictable reasons of how nationalists behave within the EU, of saying, well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to help. I mean, Orban tried to sabotage that as much as he could. But the fundamental point was no one was going to help them out. But it wasn't really, I mean, I, you know, the, the individual governments of Italy and Greece did some things that I think were reprehensible. But ultimately, this this went to the top. You know, this was an EU decision-making yeah. process that led to that, to, to, to yeah. those sorts of moral, uh, abysmal moral outcomes. Naomi, can listeners do anything practical to voice their opposition to this sort of stuff? Yes, yes, always. And I'm afraid the advice is always the same. It is repeat your message in volume over time to your elected representatives. Um, I would say that that isn't just your MP, actually. I think it's your council leaders. Uh, we saw an absolutely mm. disgusting interview of the Liberal Democrat leader on Torbay Council say that, oh, we can't possibly cope with migrants from Afghanistan uh, because, you know, we, we, we haven't got the public services to cope with them. It was just a disgraceful bit of xenophobia and, and isn't acceptable. And we need to make sure that the councils, uh, as well as MPs, are hearing from us. And I would say, you know, your your, your best place to start is with Mini Raman's organisation, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. They are brilliant on all of this, um, uh, as are, of course, other organisations that, that do their best to represent refugees. But it, it is... I think about reaching every single uh, elected representative in your area and, and letting them know that you, there is strength of feeling on this and that it's it, we are not a nation that wants to turn our backs on the most vulnerable people fleeing horrendous situations and seeking sanctuary here and they need a safe course of passage to get here. That was a trailer for the bonus edition for this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now, every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. It really does help keep us going. And don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>